Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, Head of UK Rate Strategy, and I'm joined today by our Global Market Specialist, Giles Gale and Dan Navruzzi. Okay, Imogen, you are up first this week. So the big news, I suppose, for us was that you hit your target on uh, on tenure gilts. So the next question, I suppose, is um, what next? <laughs> yes. Well, avid listeners or readers of our research will know that we um, entered the year with a 4.3% tenure gilt target. Uh, we then revised it down to 3.75. And having hit that this week, uh, we've now thrown in the towel and revised it back up to 4.3%, if you like. Um, I think, you know, the the drivers of why we revised it down from 43 to 3.75 were that we had, um, you know, a, a rapid repricing, I suppose, of inflation expectations with the fall in natural gas prices. We had a bit of a reassessment of which way the risks was tilted on the supply outlook, um, which we can go on to talk about. Um, but but it feels to me like the pendulum, pendulum, if you like, on both of those factors has now shifted too far in the other direction. And so all the reasons why we entered the year being, you know, initially bearish and that we thought that inflation would still be slow to come down, that the bank would still be hiking rates and keep them on hold, not be cutting rates at the end of this year. And that net supply um, is is going to be huge and, and there's no real offsetting demand to take down all that um, additional supply. All of those things, I think, should should matter again for gilts and, and should be pushing again in a in a bearish direction. So we're back to 4.3 on 10-year gilts, um, which is, I suppose, about a 40-ish basis point sell-off from, from where we are now. Um, it's a little bit higher, 4.3 is, than where our kind of fair value model suggests that, that 10-year gilts should be, which is closer to 4% really. Um, but actually, I think, A, in this kind of bearish fixed income environment with momentum seemingly really all pushing in one direction right now, an overshoot versus where we see fair value in the model is, is probably more likely than an undershoot. But also because the model itself is calibrated on... Um, you know, historic yield levels, which have been in in very different net supply regimes. And so um, it's possible that when uh, calibrating how we look forward to the increase in supply and, and the risks of supply saturation, actually the model is underestimating what, what the impact on, on gilt yields could be in, with this kind of deluge of, of supply that's coming in and lack of demand. And therefore, um, I'm kind of comfortable having uh, a slightly higher gilt target that, than our fair value model has implied for the last couple of weeks. Okay, very clear. Um, so I guess you mentioned the remit there, and I suppose that is the next big event for, for gilts, really. So perhaps you could just talk a little bit about what your early expectations are on that. Yeah, I think this remit's an interesting one because there's a lot of question marks around the overall gilt supply number. Well, I suppose there's always question marks around it, but it feels like there's a lot of moving parts this time around. And and that's what I was really alluding to earlier when I said it feels like expectations have swung far in the other direction for a number of reasons. Firstly, you've had lower energy prices, which to a certain degree, lower the um, kind of pull on government finances, particularly from the cost of the EPG. 
Um, you've also had this narrative that we've spoken about before on the podcast, that there's the opportunity for the government to not lower their overall funding needs, but diversify these sources of funding. So perhaps get a little bit more via bills, a little bit more via retail, NSNI, the national savings and then investment products that they have. Um, and you've also had better than expected public finance data, which implies some undershoot um, on this year's uh, borrowing numbers, which obviously puts them in a p better position for, for the year ahead. Um, so market expectations, I think, have, have swum quite far to now expecting you know, downside on that overall number, such that I think the risks are now skewed to the upside, because I think there's a limit really to how much they can actually do via bills and how much they can raise via NSNI and really just how much they will save um, via lower energy costs. And then you have the added complication that we're obviously heading into pre-election year or, or years ahead, which means that any fiscal headroom that I think that they do have um, from an undershoot in borrowing in this fiscal year will ultimately just get recycled into kind of fiscal giveaways and, and vote winning measures in the months ahead. The question mark really is around when those vote winning measures are delivered um, and whether any of this is announced in um, March in, in the next couple of weeks or actually delayed to the autumn statement when we'll be a little bit closer to that kind of campaigning period for, for the election. So I think there is a risk that that on that basis, um, perhaps the guilt number that's announced in the next couple of weeks looks kind of artificially lower, if you like, and that actually ultimately masks how high issuance is going to be in the autumn or, or perhaps even next spring when these kind of fiscal giveaways are announced. But I do think that that risks have swung or the expectations have swung so far in expecting, you know, downside risk to the number that, that the risks are, are really skewed to the upside there. Um, in terms of split, though, I think there's probably a bit more of a consensus on, on what the kind of maturity of the issuance is going to look like. Clearly, there's a bit of consensus that they'll do a bit more via bills. Um, and I think they will also do proportionally a lot less via longs and linkers, which means that this will weigh much more heavily on the shorts and, and mediums buckets. You know, we're expecting in kind of sterling billion terms the amount of longs and linkers to be the same um but obviously as as a proportion of a much higher number that means that that their um waiting if you like in in the maturity split will be much reduced and i i guess just to round it all off then I, we can't really not talk about the front end in the bank of england so uh i think that we got to pricing something like 4.8 percent um as a peak rate for, for the bank of england it seems like an awful lot to me <laughs> yeah, me too. I think I said it sounded like an awful lot last week and we were at least about 10 basis points lower. So uh, it definitely seems like an awful lot this week. Um, I think we, you know, we, we've been saying for a while that the bank really only needs to do one more 25 basis point hike this year, perhaps two. That's the kind of upside risk scenario. Um, but beyond that, further hikes, I think, are unlikely. And that's not to say that the Bank of England might not be forced to hike again in this cycle. But just in 2023, I think they're unlikely to hike again beyond four and a half. And that's in the risk case scenario. You know, what it will be that forces their hand to, to hike further will be to do with the tightness in the labour market. Um, and the persistence of wage inflation. And I don't think they'll have enough clarity on that kind of this side of, of Christmas to, to be able to assess that they need to hike more than they already have. 
um, particularly when you consider the lag transmission mechanism of monetary policy, you know, especially here in the UK, given the structure of the mortgage market, the fact that most mortgages are fixed, you know, for two, three, five year periods, it means that there's a very long lag between the Bank of England hiking rates and those rate hikes actually being felt by the real economy. Their own data suggests that of the uh, you know, 300 plus basis points of tightening that they've done since November 21, or, sorry, December 21. Um, only about a quarter of that has actually kind of fed through to the real economy via higher interest rates because there's still a huge proportion of, of fixed mortgages that haven't refixed at, at higher rates. So because of this lag transmission mechanism, it means that tightening will still be being delivered to the real economy well after the Bank of England stop hiking rates if they stop in March or if they stop in May, um, which means that I don't think that they will need to kind of over deliver on on that this year. Um, Bailey's comments this morning, we're recording this on Wednesday, Governor Bailey's comments were quite dovish, I felt like, you know, he, he sort of reiterated the message from the February meeting was that in their central scenario, they didn't really see the need to raise rates much further than here, if at all. Uh, and it would really depend on how the data evolved between the kind of February, uh, March and May meetings. And actually, with regard to the latest data, and it's the strength in the data that's been pushing the market to, to expecting, you know, a significantly higher peak over the last couple of weeks. But actually, in his view, the data really was was broadly in line with their central scenario. So I don't think that the governor was really endorsing a, a peak in rates anywhere close to 4.8%, to, to be honest with you. Um, so we had been looking for kind of August, December steepness as the market priced out the cuts in 2023, which it has done. Um, and now I think better risk reward is probably just being in kind of outright receivers of of September or perhaps a little bit later when when that peak is now being priced in. Okay, that's enough from me. <laughs> Let's think about Europe then, because although we hit our guilt target this week, we're also really not very far from hitting um, our bun target, which has been 275 for a long time now, Giles. Um, what's your view on on where that might go next if and when we do hit 275? Okay, I mean, I, I guess the answer is higher at this point. Um, no, I, I don't think that there's anything that screams out that we that we ought to be calling for a turn in the momentum. Um, in particular, the more ag aggressive ECB pricing that we have, which I mean, it is substantially more aggressive. We, than just uh, just a few weeks ago, and especially within that, the steeper money market curve. So now we had this peak that was sort of around September, and then rate normalisation uh, there thereafter. And we've actually seen quite a dramatic bearish steepening in the money markets curve, and that would normally be associated with higher rates all the way along the curve, which of course we've already seen, but no, just. As a rough guess, because I actually haven't had uh, the time to to run the numbers through all models and so on yet, I, I I would think that that probably adds around fifty basis points to to that. And now I should just emphasize, I don't really feel like any of the key structural sort of sectoral stories have changed very much. I mean, uh, we often try and break it down and just think, now, has anything changed for for foreigners, for example? Japanese Americans, you know, are they going to be looking at fixed income and thinking that's a lot more attractive? Well, no, not particularly. That home market's 
uh, looked pretty good as well, I would say. Uh, the banks, again, no, not especially either. Uh, you know, I think that the widening that we've seen in, in asset swap um, levels as well sort of points in that direction. So I, I don't really see any change there. So now the only thing kind of pushing in the other direction is just that basically I don't particularly agree with front end pricing in Europe either. Uh, it has, you know, it, it, it does seem like that that's got quite extended. Uh, so I'll have to sort of put in some assumptions that are a little bit more in line with what we actually think and see what that tells us about uh, about it. The short answer to your question is be almost I think revising that target higher the short term. I guess thinking about the front end then one thing that's driven the front end higher this week in Europe has been the inflation data. We're recording this on Wednesday so we don't have the full euro area number yet but we have had some national prints. What's what's the key message coming out of that and and how do you expect or how important, I guess I don't want to ask what you expect for the number tomorrow because it's going to be proved wrong or right very quickly on this pod, but but how much do you expect that print to matter for the ECB going forwards? I don't mind telling people early what I think I mean. But, you know, obviously the inflation numbers were a large part of the reason, well, they were the reason why we sold off this week. And overall, we've had more inflation, inflation sort of reflation data over the last month or so, actually. Uh, now, that has been really what's been driving the market. So, um, yeah, all of this matters. Um, but as you say, we'll know what the the actual European figure is by the time anyone actually listens to this. But you now, so far, the big countries have been have been on the high side, and you now they're probably suggesting about sort of eight point three or eight point four uh, percent for the year-on-year figure for the, for February for the, the euro area, which compared to expectations before this week of about eight point three doesn't necessarily seem too bad. But nonetheless, it's not. The downward downward momentum that I think that the bond market, particularly at this stage with lots of supply uh, coming in, that the bond market really would have wanted to have seen. It is, I think, important just to notice that you know we are down. Well, so if if that's confirmed, eight point three or eight point four percent, let's say, now that would be another fall compared to January because the January number was eight point six percent. So that um, is at least in the right direction, and you know, just. Looking at the inflation-linked markets, anyway, uh, they have six point nine percent year-on-year for for March. Uh, it's it's really from March and April that the disinflation really starts to to accelerate because that's where the the base effects, those high inflation figures uh, that came in early last year, start to wash out of those annual comparisons. That would bring the Q1 overall. Uh, average down to around 8%, which would still be well below what the ECB had uh, in their December forecast. They were forecasting 9.1% for, for, for Q1. So, no, this isn't necessarily terrible. Um, on the other hand, core inflation looks like it might pick up. Again, no, we will know by the time you, you listen, but no, <laughs> it looks like that might be 5.4 or 5.5%, which you know, is definitely not the right trajectory and you know, really quite alarming levels. And I think that that is something which is a focus for for, for markets. Um, in addition to that, food inflation looks like it's going to be unpleasant until 
the second quarter at least now across the the zone really um but yeah i mean just coming back to the but very quickly on the core um question this market's quite fixated off the ecb's need to see all the indicators kind of heading down and uh, corroborating the disinflation and you know i'd just like to highlight that there's a bit of discussion about that uh, for the Blaine speech, or not speech, his interview from um, Tuesday this week, where you know, he, he talks about underlying inflation. And you know, to an extent, underlying inflation means you strip out the, you know, the, the volatile components, food and energy and so on. But, now, he nuances a little bit by saying it's not as simple as just core. You do have to take into account the fact that energy prices influence the, the the trajectory and everything um at this point so so I, I think we'll just we'll just leave it at that i mean we're coming up to an important forecast round as everybody knows and no it's not just going to be this big to which feeds into that okay lots to watch out for that sticking loosely with the theme of inflation i suppose jan we updated our fed call um at the end of last week following the PCE data. So perhaps you can um, give us a rundown of, of what we're expecting now and, and the drivers behind that change in the view. Yeah, so uh, last Friday we got the core PCEs, the personal consumption, uh, consumer expenditure numbers, which uh, which came even stronger than what we had penciled in. Uh, and I should remind that uh, last time around when we were talking about uh, what inflation, how inflation would spill into the Fed's preferred gauge, the core PC. Uh, we expected the strength from services side and the CPI to spill into PC, but not so much the weaknesses. That's what happened, but even more so. So if you uh, look at metrics that Chair Powell has pointed in the past, such as uh, core services, X housing, I mean, those are still marching on at a very, very high speed, and, and uh, the Fed will simply be unable to uh, to ignore uh, I, I guess not necessarily a strong pickup but the lack of deceleration in those areas which are still on track to be about over five percent on an annualized basis uh and and require immediate action so we don't so our updated fed call is for now for a 50 basis point hike at the next march meeting uh which is pretty out of consensus at this point markets and pricing for about uh, a full 25 and another 20% for a 50 uh, chance for 50. And then we see uh, two more 25 base point hikes at those two meetings afterwards, so in May and in June, which means that the terminal rate will come to 55 to 5.75%. Now, the the March call is, uh, I should point out, not really a, a extremely high conviction. So we're not necessarily banging on the table saying well the fed will 100 uh follow through with a uh, with a 50 base point hike as uh kevin Cummins, our economist put it, it but he sees it more around 60 percent, so more likely than not that they might step it up as the data just gives them enough cover uh, there's uh, there's different ways to look at it does the data give them a cover yeah uh, inflation was strong unemployment was very strong and we might get validation with the next set of data before the fed meeting it's definitely uh something that we think is uh, likely it will it would most definitely make the feds communication uh style a little bit more well it would be a little bit challenging given the feds communication style which is trying to be as predictable and as open uh to markets let them uh let markets price in a, a very clear message from the Fed. and if we do 
something like a 50 base point, 25, 50, 25, that will certainly be a little bit more difficult. But there is enough cover with the data to uh, point out and, and be, well, we had unemployment is record low. We've adding, we're adding jobs at extremely fast speed. Uh, inflation is just not slowing down as much as we wanted to. Uh, we have to kind of do more. So uh, that was the base of our update. And we'll see. Next thing is for Chair Powell on the on the March 7th, he will have his semi-annual Humphrey Hawkins testimony uh, in front of Congress, uh, where he will likely touch upon these issues. We don't think he will commit to anything like a 50 base point hike. And unfortunately, the unemployment and inflation data comes before the Fed meeting, but during the blackout period where Fed officials are really not supposed to comment on monetary policy. Uh, so we're, we're going to be in this limbo period where markets will likely be very volatile and ping pong between 50 and 25, uh, depending on the strength of the data. Very volatile. That doesn't sound like these. That's a first, I guess. <laughs> okay. So how does that leave your views then? I think last week we were talking about how you like being long the front end because obviously um, for our prior Fed call, it felt like markets are pricing in too much. Um, do you still like those kind of trades or are you thinking about something else now? Yeah, we'll like it. And when we were talking about the front end, it was not very much so the like the one or two year part, but more so the three year sector as uh, we are of the view that it will be very hard to price out the entirety of of the rate cuts in the curve. And so if you look at forward, such as December 23, December 25 forward, so like I'm, I'm referring to uh, software futures in this case, you, you can see that the amount of cuts priced in haven't really uh, decreased. If anything, uh, that inversion has continued to get more and more negative. Uh, of course, the overall level of yields was lifted, so uh, the whole curve moved up upwards alongside. But we think it will be, uh, we don't think it will be easy or possible at all for that higher from longer uh, to materialize anything past 2024. So once this trench out, to, once you extend duration of things like three years, four years, uh, now you're kind of in the purview of, well, a recession is likely, uh, Fed cuts are likely, just a question of how much. Uh, so we do like, we, we still like kind of like the three to five year area. We like 530 steep burners, especially now that the, that curve has inverted very, very sharply, uh, kind of pushing like lows at negative 28 base points as I walked into this room. Uh, those are pretty, even tactically, pretty attractive levels. But uh, you know, when we talked about adding to three years, we kind of, we were discussing adding it like half risk, see if there's a further backup in yields as we got another shock from Fed shock, uh, which kind of happened. We didn't quite hit our target, but we are pretty close to adding more uh, in, in threes at like 460, uh, where we think would be a sufficiently attractive level to just fade with uh, more conviction. Uh, other than that, uh, something else that we have been discussing this week, and we'll have a, a much longer write-up on, have been uh, break-even inflation expectations. So I think with our new Fed call and what we expect from the data, what we haven't seen is a fall in inflation expectations. So when I talk about break-even, there's a difference between nominal and real yields, which is a rough measure of what market sees as uh, uh, inflation compensation should be over a certain period of time. Uh, at at the five-year point, they're still lingering around 2.3%, which I think is still fairly high given uh, the combination, well, the, the combination that you might get from a hawkish Fed and a subsequently weaker data. So if we have uh, this type of risk-off trading due to 
Well, the Fed says we have to do a lot more, say the dots get adjusted to 575, uh, and by dots is the, the next set of forecasts we're going to get from the Federal Reserve at the March meeting. Say they get adjusted to 575 range, and then uh, you, you see a slowdown in jobs. That I believe that would uh, sharply impact things like five-year break-evens, and I point out five-year because relative to their historical performance, they are the ones that look a little elevated to me. Uh, so, and we think markets a lot for an opportunity to get the downside in those as they haven't reacted similarly uh, with real yields and not moving up at the same time. So uh, we do see downside risks for inflation expectations, not very much on the front end, but more so uh, areas like the five to 10 year are the sweet spot for us. Okay, great. Lots to watch out for on the card. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, I think that's probably enough for today. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you both for joining me. Uh, just a reminder to our listeners, if you liked today's episode, please don't forget to hit the like button and click subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks. See you next week.